Welcome back to the Diet Doctor Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Brett Scher. Today I'm joined by Dr. Jason Fung. I should say rejoined because if you've been following the podcast for a while, you'll know we had a, a prior episode with Dr. Fung, uh, episode number 23. So if you haven't listened to that, I, I highly recommend you go back and listen to that. But you know, Dr. Fung, he's a practicing nephrologist, but that just sells him short to say that's all he is. He's also a best-selling book author. He's revolutionized the way we as people and as the medical community think about fasting as a medical intervention. He's the co-founder of the fasting method. He's written books about obesity and diabetes and longevity and, of course, fasting. And now he's taken on cancer. Uh, and it's it's so interesting to hear him talk about cancer and what he learned in his book and what he wrote in his book because you can see his intellectual curiosity I mean, he's really like a little kid with knowledge. He's just so excited about it, about all that he's learned and what it means for potential therapies, where we sort of have had missteps, what we can learn from it, and how we can apply that to the future. And uh, I mean, it, this is such an interesting interview because of the depth and the knowledge that he has. And I really tried to tie it into what can we do about these things. And of course, fasting is something he talks a lot about, but it's really putting it into perspective, right? He's not so simple as to say fasting cures everything, just go and do it. Uh, everything has its place and, you know, there's a lot we don't know. We have to be honest about that and he is, he is honest about that and I think that's important and it's trying to get his knowledge and experience, mix it with what we do know to see what, what, what could be coming in the future and what can we do to give us the best chance possible uh, to live the healthiest life. So that's, that's really what I like um, from this interview. But there's a lot of information, a lot of detail about cancer. Um, at one point, we talk about nutrient sensors. So I just want to clarify, hopefully um, you're somewhat knowledgeable about this, but the nutrient sensors are anything in our body that sense nutrients coming in. So mTOR, um, the mammalian target of rapamycin, um, is a big one. Uh, tends to sense protein. Insulin, of course, is an nutrient as a nutrient sensor which can sense both um, both carbohydrates and protein. And then AMPK or AMP kinase, um, which basically just senses any any nutrients in general, and that's one that's really turned on by fasting. Um, so those are the main nutrient sensors. So you're going to hear him talk briefly about that. Um, we talk about an atavistic theory of cancer, which is sort of plays into what he's talking about with this evolutionary. Um, theory of cancer. And basically, it's all about how cancers kind of are going back to um, how, sing how single cells uh, function. So I just wanted to clarify some of those terms so it's not too confusing when those come up. Also, there was a little bit of a, a ruffle from his microphone in the beginning, but we clear that up. So stick with that and it'll, it'll get better in the end. But anyway, to get all that out of the way, let's get you on to the interview. It's a very interesting and very um, thoughtful interview with Dr. Jason Fung. Well, Dr. Jason Fung, welcome back to the Diet Doctor Podcast. It's great to have you as a guest again. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. Well, so first off, anybody who hasn't listened to the first episode of, of our interview certainly should, um, because here you are now, probably a couple years later, coming back, um, hot on the heels of your latest book, uh, the, the Cancer Code. And it's I find this so interesting because you're a nephrologist who has revolutionized the way we look at fasting as a medical community. And from an individual standpoint, you've you focused on diabetes and obesity, and now have made this transition to really doing such a deep dive on the history and the current status of of cancer treatment. And I'm I'm really curious, like what was it in your experience, um, and what was it inside you that made you want to focus on cancer 
uh, more than what you've been focusing on before. You know, so I got into it from that sort of obesity type 2 diabetes um, angle originally. So it was, in fact, one of these things that I never really learned as a medical student, which is that cancer is actually a huge, huge part of obesity and metabolic <laughs> disease. So this is not something that was actually known uh, prior or, or appreciated, I should say, prior to about 2003, that uh, obesity was a major, major risk factor for certain types of cancer, breast and colorectal, for example. And the other thing was that type 2 diabetes was the same, right? It was there, but nobody recognized that it was actually a huge risk factor for cancer. And of course, cancer as a topic in general is one of the most important health topics there is. It's sort of number two um, in terms of killers of Americans, right behind cardiovascular disease. So it's important. So we all know about diabetes and heart disease, heart diabetes and stroke, for example. Uh, you know, that's, that's, that's been known for sort of 50 years, the link between those. So, uh, but the link between uh, type 2 diabetes and obesity and cancer had not been sort of known. So I, so I started out approaching it from that angle. Then it took a sort of unexpected turn as I started to look into the literature, which was there was this much more interesting topic of what we actually think cancer is um, that just sort of started coming out. And I didn't know about this. And and my guess is that most doctors, even specialists like yourself and myself, just had no idea that there was this huge sort of revolution in the way that we actually think, what, what we actually think cancer is. And because nobody has been talking about it, you don't hear about it on podcasts, you don't read about it in a book. And yes, there were some oncologists, like cancer specialists, who would say, you know, I, I'd be listening and they'd say, oh yeah, cancer is an evolutionary disease. And it'd just be this throwaway term. It's like, what do you mean by that? <laughs> right? And yeah. it's like, well, there's a whole lot more to it than what we thought. And that was just such an interesting topic. So, so I, I got into these things where I just start digging and digging and digging and trying to learn more about it. And that's sort of where most of the book sort of resides, at least most of the first half of the book. So, you know, I, you know, what is cancer? What causes cancer? Why does cancer exist? You know, where does cancer come from? All these sort of very deep philosophical uh, questions about cancer that are actually very important because it informs our treatment of cancer, right? Yeah, that's such a great point about how the the history of it, what it is, and, and our philosophies and our theories of it, how that informs treatment. Um, I think that's such an, a great such a great point. And the timing couldn't be better because there was just a publication in JAMA, which you put out on Twitter, um, showing that, what was it? 92 cancer therapies between the year 2000 and 2016, there was an average life extension of 2.4 months between all those cancer therapies that were approved in that 17-year time frame. There was only one drug that showed life extension beyond six months, and that was a drug that later a study didn't confirm that, so the drug was pulled off the market. So basically, I mean, it shows the, the progress or lack thereof that we've had in some very expensive, very time-consuming medications uh, to develop in, in terms of treating cancer. But it's not overall, Graham, as you pointed out in your book, that cancer death has de- decreased 20% from 1969 to 2014, but it's sort of like the progress really isn't quite there. And accor- according to what you, 
you wrote, a lot of it has to do with sort of a misunderstanding of what cancer is. So tell us, because I think when most people think about what cancer is, they think about you know toxins like smoking and they think about genetics. And that's sort of like the main framework, um, which you go into great detail in your book. So tell us a little bit about why that's not the whole picture. Yeah, and this is this is the sort of um, the way that we think about cancer is we started thinking about it as a disease of cells that just grow too much, right? It's excessive growth. And I call that sort of the modern cancer paradigm number one. And it was very important because if cells are just growing too much, then the logical treatment is to kill them. So we devised all sorts of ways to kill cells. So either surgery, so you can cut them out, you can do radiation, you can burn them, and you can poison them, which is what chemotherapy is, right? So you can cut them, you can burn them, you can poison them. And that was actually a huge advance and really the, still the basis of modern <laughs> chemotherapy, truthfully. Um, but the problem is that there's a lot of side effects. So people's hairs fall out, they, they, they get nauseated, all the, the usual thing you think about with chemotherapy. But that's the logical treatment to cancer paradigm number one. And you reach a limit to what you can do because it doesn't answer sort of the more fundamental question of why are these cells growing too much? Right? So you've answered the question, what is it? It's a cell that grows too much. Fine. You have liver cancer. It's a liver cell that somehow turns into a liver cell that grows way too much. But why? And that's the question. So then we started to get into the 60s and 70s, and we started to learn about genes and so on. So we said, okay, well, we know there are certain things that cause cancer. We knew this already, right? So soot causes cancer, and asbestos causes cancer, and tobacco smoke causes cancer, and radiation causes cancer. But what is it that links all these things? Why are these things cancer-causing and some other infection not cancer-causing? And we knew viruses, for example, cause cancer in H. pylori, which is a bacterium. It caused cancer. And we knew ulcerative colitis caused cancers. But So we knew all these sort of disparate things. But we didn't know why uh, something like tobacco smoke, to take the most obvious example, would lead to cancer. So then we came to cancer paradigm sort of number two, which is uh, that, hey, the, the, the growth in cells is regulated by genes. So if you have a mutation in that gene, then you will grow too much. And all of these different things, the viruses, the tobacco smoke, the asbestos, they are cancer-causing because they cause genetic mutations. That is, they're mutagens, and therefore they are carcinogens as well, right? Carcinogens being the term for cancer-causing agents. And that seemed to tie everything perfectly together. So through the 80s and 90s, we started developing a new type of treatment. Because now we, don't, we no longer have to look for treatments that kill cells. We could now look for treatments that fix those genetic mutations, right? And so you're not going to get the, 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 the terrible side effects that you're going to get. So the first few drugs that were developed, so there was imatinib for CML, which is a type of leukemia, and it was mind-bogglingly good. Like, it is impossible to, you know, overstate how good that drug was for, for that particular cancer. Now, this was a very unusual cancer, very rare type of cancer, but it was practically curing these things. It was ridiculously good. And then shortly after that, you had trastuzumab, which was used for certain, a subset of breast cancer. So this is the HER2 new subset of breast cancer. And I, of course, only about 10% of people had this mutation, so they actually devised a test. They would test 
for this mutation in the cancer, then if you had it, they would give you the drug. So now you had a completely new paradigm of treatment, which is personalized treatment. So not only targeted, so genetically targeted personalized medicine. And we were in 2000, we're like, this is going to cure cancer. Like this right, is when it. the first two examples are that yeah. good, it's sort of like game over. We, we got yeah. this, you know, we finally it, figured it out, right? Exactly. So huge yeah. optimism in around 2000. And, and, and just, you know, just around the corner, we had the Human Genome Project, right? So here we are going to get this map. We're going to say, hey, there's growth gene here, there's growth gene here. And in cancer, we're going to see this mutation, this mutation, let's just fix them and that's it, right? So... Yeah. This is actually but it turned two, out to not be hit. so clean, right? <laughs> yeah. It wasn't so, so this simple. This was the, the sort of two-hit hypothesis that I learned about in, um, in medical school in the 90s, right? So it was that, the, you know, you had one hit, but that clearly wasn't enough. So then you'd have two hits or three hits. So you had two or three mutations. So when what we would do, this was what our thinking in the 2000s is that, well, we're going to find the two or three genetic mutations in breast cancer, two or three genetic mutations in colon cancer, and just going to find out these drugs to fix these mutations and that's it we're done we've cured cancer right so very optimistic and and you know really uh, everybody was very excited but it didn't turn out that way unfortunately and so this is the somatic mutation theory so this is the, the theory of cancer the cancer paradigm number two sort of that it's a genetic mutation in a growth containing region that caused this excessive growth and the problem is that when we did the human genome project, we didn't find what caused cancer. Then we went on to something called the Cancer Genome Atlas, which was an even more ambitious effort. So they didn't just sequence, you know, one human being. They sequenced 33,000 cancer samples. And they compared them so that they could find out which genes are sort of important for colon cancer, for example. Turns out that colon cancer, for uh, you know, to take an example, didn't have one or two mutations. It had like fifty to a hundred mutations. It was just terrible. Yeah. So that problem is even worse than that. Like the more we dug in, the worse this somatic mutation theory was. Because if you had patient A and patient B, two people with identical appearing cancers, so colon cancer stage is the same, you know, metastasis is the same, tumor size is the same, everything exactly looks the same, you would have 100 different mutations in patient A and 100 completely different mutations in patient B. That's so important to point out, though, because it's not that the mutation theory was totally wrong and that there were no mutations causing the problem. It's just, it wasn't as clean as the CML example, that there was one mutation you can target. There were just so many. How could you devise a treatment for this if this is the only theory we have to go on? Right? Yeah, because in CML, of course, it was the exact same mutation in every single patient, yeah. right? So, you know, for like 80% of CML patients had the exact same single mutation that could be fixed, right? The mm -hmm. BCR-ABLE gene. And in colon cancer uh, and other types of common cancer, breast cancer, for example, that's not what you saw. You didn't see two people with the same mutations. You saw completely different mutations. And then the more you looked, the worse it got because so you had patient, you know, patient A, patient B had different genetic mutations. But even if you took the same colon cancer and you profiled the colon cancer compared to a metastatic part of the colon cancer in the same patient, they would have different genes. 
And yeah. even in different parts of the tumor, you had different genetic mutations. So even if you got 100 different drugs, which you will never do, into that, that patient, you may only treat a, a, you know, a sliver of that colon cancer because the other part of the colon cancer has different mutations and the metastasis has different mutations, right? So complete genetic bedlam. So in 2018, the last I looked for this book anyway, um, when they cataloged the number of genetic mutations that they have found in cancers overall, it was close to 6 million, 6 million <laughs> genetic mutations. It was mind boggling. So the whole sort of uh, somatic mutation theory that is one or two or three mutations per cancer was just out the window. And of course, this is why you didn't have any progress in cancer medicine. Because if your paradigm is let's fix the genetic mutations, well, that paradigm has been completely invalidated and therefore you cannot make any progress. So if you look at the number of genetically targeted treatments and they've done this in various studies. I, I cite them in the book. You can match like two to four percent of patients to you know precision medicine targeting. The number of drugs that are actually useful for precision genetically targeted personalized medicine is like maybe five. That's probably generous. The number of drugs. And like I said, I had a, I had quoted an earlier study. Uh, which looked, I think, up to 2016 or something, which showed the same thing. Average length of you know, overall survival increase with these drugs was 2.1 months. Here it was like 2.4 months. Very, very similar. That one extends out to 2020, of course. So it was just, you know, we're totally, completely like dead in the water by 2010. It was just terrible. So the, 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 the new paradigm had failed because it had failed to lead to new and better treatments. But then that was where sort of I had left the story. But it turns out that something very interesting sort of came through in the last 10 years, which was that the entirely new paradigm of cancer has basically taken hold, the story of which most people don't even know. Most doctors even have no idea because I had no idea. And most of the people I talked to had no idea. So, and this was the evolutionary uh, paradigm of cancer. So, you know, again, none of this third um, sort of uh, great paradigm invalidates what comes before it. Right. It's simply building on top of it. So I'm not trying to say, oh, these people are so stupid, right? That's not the case at all. It's just that, you know, you learn more and more. You kind of peel back these layers of truth. So we know it's a, it's a, it grows too much. It's a cell that grows too much. So we ask why. <clears throat> well, there's genetic mutations. Well... Why are there those genetic mutations? That was the crux because the previous theory had said, why are there genetic mutations? And it was sort of this random thing, right? Tobacco smoke doesn't target any specific gene. It just tar it's just like, you know, just causes damage here and there, but it doesn't target one specific gene. So then if you say, well, <clears throat> why is this gene in particular um, affected? The answer, according to the previous paradigm, was it was just bad luck. It was just random. Like Just like if you buy a lot of lottery tickets, you will have a better chance of winning the lottery. In this case, if you have more damage, if you have more mutagens, you, you know, mutation-causing agents, you're going to have a higher chance that one of them, by chance, is going to hit it. And the problem with this is that the entire premise is wrong because cancer is not random. 
like, you know, when they say, okay, you get a genetic mutation and therefore you grow too much, your cell grows too much. Well, that's not random because if it was random, you know, one mutation would have the cell grow too much. You know, one mutation might have me shooting laser beams out of my eyes, right? Why don't I have that mutation? <laughs> Why don't I have a mutation like Wolverine, right? And I heal quickly, right? There's no reason a priori why you should have this specific set of mutations. That is, you, you, you grow too much, you metastasize, you use the Warburg effect, you know, these are immortal cells. There's no a priori reason. So therefore, this this, this uh, phenotype, this cancer phenotype was not random. And that's a huge, huge, huge uh, thing you have to realize because if it's not random, then you can say, what is driving it? And it turns out it's evolutionary forces. And that's, you know, to me, it's just an absolutely mind-boggling uh, sort of revelation because now you have the something that's shaping these cells into cancerous cells but what's the destination and this is where the sort of this big you know i think honestly i think it's one of the biggest leaps in cancer medicine is that if you look at these cells it's not random like a lung cancer if you take a lung cell and turn it into a lung cancer cell it's not random there are specific attributes that it is driving towards right so it doesn't matter if you're a you know, a black man from 1920 or a Chinese man from 2020, right? If you have the same, if you have lung cancer from tobacco smoke, you could be a world apart, you know, a, a century apart, half a world apart, different races, you could be different sexes, and it's still going to look the same. So therefore, there's nothing random about this. And what it turns out, which is just a, it's just a totally unexpected, fascinating answer is that the cancer cell that it's driving towards is actually an, sort of an evolutionarily primitive version of our cells, right? We're heading towards not a more advanced version of the liver cell or lung cell or whatever. We're heading towards a more primitive thing. And it's trying to emulate not the multicellular organism, but it's trying to emulate the unicellular organism, which, you know, like I said, to me, it's a completely fascinating uh, sort of yeah. sort of thing to think about it is it's, it's so interesting to think about and you go into great detail about it in in your book and in you also talk a lot about the seed and the soil that sort of that um picture comes up a lot um throughout the book and i think that's such an important point to make um and and i want you to just talk a little bit about the seed and the soil and also well we'll get into a little bit more about it but explain what you mean by the seed and the soil yeah, so if, if this is an evolutionary process, then there's two things that are important. One, you have to have genetic heterogeneity. That is, all cancer cells cannot be the same. And that's precisely what we found, actually. So remember in the previous version of cancer paradigm, which is what I learned, turns out it's not. It's All those cancer cells are, are like a hodgepodge, like it's a huge population of different genetics, right? So you have to have the genetic heterogeneity, but then the other really important thing when you're talking about evolution is the selection pressure, which is provided by the environment. And that's the sort of soil. So when you talk about cancer, you can think of it like a seed in a soil. Like if you take a seed, it doesn't grow necessarily. If you, you throw it in the, the Sahara Desert, it doesn't grow, right? You put it in 
good soil with good water and sunlight, it grows. So therefore, the seed can be exactly the same. And this is the point with the genes. The genes, and looking purely at the genes of, of cancer, right? We're going to find all the genes in cancer. Well, we did. But it doesn't tell you about whether this cancer will grow or won't grow because you only know about the seed. What is it about the soil that is going to allow this cancerous seed to flourish? And that's the important thing because we can't do anything about those genetic mutations, but we can do a lot about the environment in which it finds itself. Well, that's both a good and a bad thing. Sorry to interrupt, but it's both a good yeah. and a bad thing because on the one hand, it says, okay, well, we have the ability to do something about this. But on the other hand, I don't know, maybe there's something comforting about just saying, oh, it's a mutation that I don't have any control over, you know, not my fault versus all of a sudden, maybe it is my fault. I've put myself in the environment where this cancer can grow. So from a doctor standpoint, it's easier to tell somebody random genetic mutation, not your fault versus yeah, maybe the way you've been living did have something to do with this. I mean, that's a different paradigm that's a little uncomfortable for the patient. Oh, yeah, for sure. It's certainly uncomfortable. And that might have been one of the reasons <clears throat> why we sort of flocked to that um, somatic mutation theory. But the, the evidence is very clear that cancer is not simply um, a genetic problem because we yeah. have all this evidence. So we have evidence actually from as far back as you want to go, but you know, um, so Dennis Burkett, uh, who went to Africa, he, he discovered the, you know, the lymphoma, Burkitt's lymphoma and so on. And one of the things that he noticed very early, this is the fifties, I think, is that if you look at Africans who follow a traditional African diet and lifestyle, they didn't get colon cancer. But the whites did, and so did the Africans that adopted the white sort of lifestyle, diet, you know, yeah. lifestyle. They all got colon cancer. So it wasn't the seed, because the Africans, of course, were the same genetic stock as the Africans living a normal sort of traditional lifestyle. It was the diet and the lifestyle. And you see the same thing over and over. A Japanese woman, you move that Japanese woman to San Francisco, and within two generations, the risk of breast cancer has approximately doubled or tripled. Right. So the main question is, what is it? Yeah. Is it? What is it? And, and, and you look at the Inui of the far north, for example. So in the 20s and 30s, there are universities in Canada that were sending expeditions to the far north to see why they, these people were immune to cancer. Turns out when you change their diet, they weren't immune to cancer at all. So again, it's not the seed of the problem, it's the soil of the problem, which is the, the environment and how our genes interact. Even something like BRCA, we think of it as a sort of a cancer death sentence sort of thing, right? BRCA gene, oh, that's very scary. Well, if you look at the risk of breast cancer with BRCA, it's actually much higher now compared to sort of a century ago. So if you had the BRCA gene and you lived in the 1920s, your risk was about 10%. Now it's probably 50 or 60% of developing breast cancer in your lifetime, right? And again, it's the same gene. It's the same gene that's there, but there's not the same soil. And that probably has to do with our modern lifestyle, much of which comes down to, I think, the sort of nutrient sensors, insulin, and you know, eating too often, and, and a lot of these other things, um, which, which are sort of new what we talk about. So... You know, yeah. it's such an interesting, but it's such an interesting and empowering way because 
you know, on the one hand, you say it's it's sort of comforting to say that it's not your fault. On the other hand, if you actually want to do something about it, then we actually can do something about it. Because again, if you say, okay, let's take that Japanese woman in San Francisco, if we can understand what it is that's going to make her risk of breast cancer so high, we could drop her risk by a factor of two to three, yeah. right? So that's the goal. That's amazing. Like before, 20 years ago, according to the previous paradigm, we'd be like, eh, what are you going to do, right? You can't do anything. It's the genes, right? Now it's like, we actually have a goal. We can see the goal. We should be able to get back there if we work at it and can understand it. And that's what's so important about having these paradigms of cancer, understanding sort of what it is the disease we're talking about. And that's why it's so the sort of new, and there's new treatments to, that, that come along with that. Yeah. But again, it's, it's, it's one of these things that the, 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 how you, what you think about the disease, you know, influences so much the research, you know, the, 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 the public policy and all that kind of stuff. Because some you know, people say it's about genes, it's about genes. It's like, well, if I were to ask you what causes lung cancer, would you be more correct to say it's a mutation in XYZ gene? Or would you be more correct to say smoking? Smoking yeah. causes lung cancer. Well, obviously, you want to know about the smoking, not about the five genetic mutations that you found, right? And this is the same thing. You've got to get past that paradigm to say what's causing those mutations. And that's where we've already come. And that's where, 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 where we're sort of just starting to scratch the surface. And that's why I think it's such an interesting, like, it's such an interesting topic. Yeah. Yeah. So, so that's a great sort of summary. I mean, and it's, there's so much there that you unpack in, in your book about where we were and where we are. And like you said, it is a much more empowering um, philosophy because it, we can do something about it, but it's still not universally accepted among um, oncologists, the atavistic theory or the evolutionary theory. Uh, there are still some people who think it's it's kind of not prime time. And I'm curious what, what you think about that. Like why are people, are some people in the medical community still reluctant to sort of accept this as the, as the new age of, of cancer? Um, what have you come across? Um, I don't know. I don't know. Like when I listen to some of these, it's not purely an act, like it's the activistic theory is, it makes a lot of sense. A lot of people are more willing to call it an evolutionary theory. So that seems to be fairly well accepted amongst oncologists. And I've said, you know, I've talked to a couple of oncologists and they say, yeah, I mean, I've presented, uh, you know, to cancer rounds and stuff. And, and they, you know, most people, you know, they don't think of it that way. They just think of it as an evolution not thinking about the sort of deeper, because that part about trying to evolve towards that unicellular existence, that's what we're talking about for the activism. It makes actually so much sense. And, you know, if you're to ask that question, so, um, you know, because if you evolve, if cancer evolves sort of on a forward evolutionary basis, then there's no reason for cancers all to look alike. Right, so if you um, have patient A with a, a, a lung cancer, for example, and patient B with a lung cancer, which look identical under pathology, I should say, well, those cancer, those two cancers have evolved completely independently of each other, person A and person B. So why would they look exactly the same? The, the odds of that are actually astronomically small because how can you have a hundred mutations in person a hundred different yeah. mutations in person b and it looks exactly the same 
Like it doesn't make any sense unless it's following a guided path. And that's sort of answers a question as to, you know, that, you know, this sort of theory just answers so many questions that would otherwise be very hard to answer, such as why does cancer exist in every part of the body? Why does every cell have the potential to become cancer, right? That wouldn't make sense any other way unless it's actually the very core of how we got here, sort of our existence, right? You can get cancer in your eyeballs. You can get cancer in your heart valves. You can get cancer in your placenta, right? There's almost no cell in the human body that cannot become a cancer. And actually goes much deeper than that. Like every multi-celled animal practically that's ever existed has the potential to get cancer. Yeah. Uh, maybe the, the naked problems? mole rat. <laughs> I don't know much about the naked mole rat, so I'm going to stop you there. But um, but one of the problems with cancer also is that it's not one thing, right? There's um, you know thyroid cancer, testicular cancer, Hodgkin's lymphoma. Those cancers are you know thought of as being treatable, like they're even with sort of the older paradigm, and they're very different from colon cancer and breast cancer and lung cancer. So we can't even talk about cancer as one thing. Yet there are some defining characteristics that all cancers share, which is sort of kind of a lot about what you're talking about. So using that, how does that inform, you know, controlling our environment in a way that's going to affect testicular cancer and breast cancer and colon cancer and prostate cancer? Are there certain patterns of life that are going to affect all cancers similarly? And now that I asked the question, we also have to have the caveat that we really don't have any evidence to show that certain activities prevent cancer because we're sort of like on the precipice of this type of theory and those studies take decades and decades. So how do you sort of formulate how you've presented the evolution of cancer to where we are now, what we can do about it, and what evidence do we have to support what we can do about it? Yeah, and that's the thing. So that was the big breakthrough sort of around year 2000 is that there's one, uh, a couple of guys uh, who published a paper called The Hallmarks of Cancer, which is sort of a total revelation because prior to that, of course, everybody had said, here's breast cancer and here's leukemia, and they're different. Well, yes, they're different. They're both cancers, but they're different. So people had always treated them differently. But what they did, which was different, and what made it sort of the most cited paper in all of oncology, um, was that this was the first paper that really looked at how cancers were like. And that is what sort of led us, that was sort of the beginning of the movement to figuring out what is cancer as a whole not as breast cancer and liver cancer, but what are these? What is the driving force? So we know there's genetic heterogeneity, but what is the selection pressure? And this is uh, the thing that seems to be the most important is that the selection pressure is this basically this chronic injury. And it has to be very specific. It has to be chronic because when you're talking about an evolutionary process, it can't take a little bit of time. It has to be a continuous selection pressure. And it has to be sublethal because if you have too much injury, everything just dies. If you have too little injury, it just gets repaired. But in that sort of gray zone, if you have chronic sublethal damage of almost any kind, your body now has to undergo some change. It can't just do what it's doing. So say you take tobacco smoke, chronic sublethal injury. Your cells, your lung cells, if they do nothing, they'll die. They have to evolve in order to survive. And the way they evolve is to become 
more towards that unicellular pathway. So in fact, it's, it's not simply that, oh, this can causes this cancer, this causes this cancer. Any type of sublethal injury. So if you look at ulcerative colitis, well, you know, where's the causative agent? Well, it's an autoimmune disease. There's nothing unusual, but any chronic damage is going to cause that. Look at gastroesophageal reflux. Stomach acid is your causative agent, but it's not the stomach acid. It's that chronic sublethal damage. It's the way the viruses work, but it has to be chronic. So you have a hepatitis B virus, hepatitis B, hepatitis C cause cancer, cause liver cancer. So those are both cause chronic liver damage. Hepatitis A and hepatitis E do not cause chronic liver damage. They cause acute fulminant liver damage, and they don't cause cancer. Same thing with Hiroshima, the atomic blast. So if you have chronic radiation, you get cancer. But if you have a single huge dose of radiation, such as the atomic bomb, you either die if you survive, the actual outcome of those cases, those irradiated Japanese people, there's a lot less cancer than they expected. They expected huge amounts of cancer afterwards based on the amount of radiation that, was, that they exposed these people to, but they actually didn't find it because there was no chronic ongoing selection pressure that is, that is, that is uh, effective. Yeah. So it's, 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 it's a much more... Um, you know, it's, it's much more nuanced in terms of, you know, you can't simply say this causes this. It's really any cause of damage. So even the drugs that we use, you know that chemotherapy, it causes, you know, from, from you know, the original paradigm one, there are ways to kill cells, but they can cause cancer too. So the very drugs that you use to cure cancer actually cause cancer, right? Isn't that strange? The very thing you use, radiation treatment, for breast cancer, for example. So you try and cure cancer with radiation, but it actually causes cancer as well. And it's the same paradigm. What you're looking at is any type of sublethal uh, injury to any type of cell will cause this selection pressure. You have the he genetic heterogeneity, you have selection pressure, and then you can get this evolution back towards a more primitive form. And what I always think is interesting about, you know, people say, well, it's not activism. Do you know, like, when pathologists talk about cancer, that's precisely the term that they use, yeah. the primitive, right? Hasn't it been for our entire medical careers that the pathologists have always said, oh, they're blast cells, which are early cells for leukemia, right? Or, oh, they're very primitive looking cells. It's just taken a it's long like, time to get from the pathologist to <laughs> yeah. sort of the front line and the research. And yeah. And yeah, yeah. And the word anaplasia means to move backwards, right? So everything. Yeah thing that the pathologists have been looking at in their microscope, everything, when they look at cancer, what they see, because that's what their eyes are telling them, yeah. is this is a, not a more evolutionarily advanced cell. It's actually a very primitive cell. Right. So it's like, we've been doing that for 50 years. And yet people, I, I, I don't think there's a lot, I think there's a lot of people who don't know it. I don't think there's a lot of people mm -hmm. who are actively sort of against this, uh, like, you know, they may not know the nuance. And what yeah. I thought was fascinating too about this is that in the last two years, what they did was they looked at the, 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 the genes that were mutated in cancer. So they didn't say, they didn't ask the question, which genes are mutated in cancer? They said, when, at, from what evolutionary period of time are the genes 
that are mutating cancer when in evolutionary time. And what's interesting is that you see this big spike right at the junction. So they took all the genes, they divided them into 17 phylostrata, which is sort of, you know, uh, you know, periods of evolutionary life. So from the most ancient to the most recent genes, and there's a big spike right at the junction of unicellular and multicellular mm. life. Yeah. That's fascinating yeah. because it's like that is precisely what was predicted by right. the atavistic theory from 2010, which is a completely random thing that you'd say, okay, well, if this, this theory of evolutionary theory of cancer is correct and it's a move backwards and, and, and the period you have to focus on is between unicellular and multicellular life, and this is exactly what they found, which you would never have found if you didn't have that theory, right? But you knew right. where to look now. And it's like, that's right. fascinating. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so so let's bring this around to to some sort of treatment, though, because you're, I mean, let's face it, you're known as the fasting doc, right? You're the, the founder of IDM. You're, you've sort of revolutionized how we think about fasting as a medical intervention. So part of um, what I'm sure you believe, not to put words in your mouth, though, is that fasting is an appropriate indication for trying to prevent uh, cancer. So why would that be? And what kind of evidence do we have to suggest that? And kind of where do you think the future should go for fasting as a treatment for um, either preventing or treating cancer? Yeah, unfortunately, there's not a lot of evidence. So there's actually very, very little evidence. And the problem is that it's actually much more broad than fasting. And that's what I tried to get out uh, in the book is that it's actually not just fasting itself, but this overall sort of nutrient sensors because we have several nutrient sensors in the body. And it's important because when your body senses nutrients, it, it wants to grow. So it turns out that the nutrient sensors, insulin, mTOR, and AMPK, which are the three nutrient sensors that our body uses, are actually growth factors, very highly potent growth factors, in fact. So when you eat, your body says, hey, there's food available. And then it tells the cells, you've got to grow because you've got to grow while there's food available. So the, 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 the thing is that if you don't have food, you're going to do the opposite way. Your body's going to turn into sort of very sort of slow growth sort of mode, which is, of course, less conducive to cancer. And that's part of what makes that sort of soil very fertile. So this is why a disease such as obesity, which is a disease of hyperinsulinemia, so it's a disease where there's too much insulin, right? So if I just pump somebody full of insulin, they're going to gain weight because that's what you're telling the body to do. But the other thing you're telling the body to do is to grow, grow as much as you can. And that is going to tip the scales this may not cause cancer but it's going to tip the scales towards favoring the development of cancer and realizing that cancer this cancerous seed is in every single one of us every single day it's just that our anti-cancer forces are strong enough to keep them all in check but the minute you start to tip the balance in favor of growth versus sort of no growth then you're going to increase your risk of cancer and that's why disease such as uh, obesity, which is too much, has too much insulin, is going to be a pro-cancer state. That's why a disease such as type 2 diabetes, which is a disease of hyperinsulinemia, is going to be a pro-growth state. And that's the problem. So now we have diseases of hyperinsulinemia, which we know as a society 
are actually growing, like there's an obesity epidemic, there's a type 2 diabetes epidemic. And in fact, well, we've been doing pretty well in terms of cancer, except for those cancers that are obesity related. So yeah. if you look at, you know, the, the biggest thing by far has been stopping smoking. That's the most important thing. So lung cancers are going down, oral pharyngeal cancers are going down, that kind of thing. But what's going up are breast cancer, liver cancer, pancreatic cancer, uh, colorectal cancer to some degree. That's going down because of screening as well. But, yeah. you know, the point is that we're finding a lot more because we're having a lot more hyperinsulinemia. So what can does fasting have to do with it? Well, if you are overweight, then you can use fasting to lower your weight. And presumably that will lower your risk of these obesity-related cancers. Same with type 2 diabetes. If you use fasting to reverse your type 2 diabetes, which you can, then you're going to be at lower risk of developing those obesity-related cancers. That's about all you can say right now. I mean, I think it's a so, very useful tool. Yeah, so in your opinion, um, is that the most potent intervention or you know, how would it compare to weight loss surgery, which can help you lose weight and um, lower insulin and glucose, or to a ketogenic diet, which can do the same, you know, different, different versions to sort of achieve similar goals? Like how do you see the difference between all those? I think that they will all actually benefit. So it'd be very much the same for ketogenic diets because a lot of uh, way, the ways it benefits people is that it reduces your insulin. So if you're eating a high fat diet, then fat you know, has very little insulin effect compared to carbohydrates or protein. So therefore it's a very sort of low insulin diet. Same thing with um, bariatric surgery. If you, if you manage to keep the weight off and there's issues there, of course, because even if you narrow somebody's uh, stomach and cut out their stomach, they can still drink soda and, you know, <laughs> all this bad right. stuff. So right. a lot of people do regain it, but if you can successfully keep that weight off, then you will lower the risk of, of those diseases. So there's many ways to do it. It's, it's yeah. not like fasting is the only thing. It's just a, one of these easy things to, to incorporate into your lifestyle. And then how about a higher carbohydrate, but still, um, relatively calorie restricted diet where someone is losing weight, would that have a, a similar effect because the weight is in check, even though the insulin response may be different? I mean, I guess it's an unknown question, but you know, we, when you see people like, um, in the blue zones who don't get cancers eating a relatively high carbohydrate diet, they're not going to have maybe the same insulin response. So it's, it's not all carbs. It's carbs as part of the whole picture, I guess. Yeah, I think it is all part of the whole picture because, again, what I thought was interesting from some of the data from the Catavans is that the Catavans, which was this island in the South Pacific, and uh, years ago they did this study. So Catavans eat somewhere around 69% carbohydrate diet. But um, a while ago they measured the serum insulin levels of these Catavans compared to a reference Swedish population, and that's only because the, um, the, the researcher was from Sweden. And it turns out that these catavans, which are eating this very high carbohydrate diet, had serum insulins at the 5 percentile, meaning that 95% of the Swedish population had higher insulin levels. And remember, Swedes are amongst sort of the fittest people on earth sort of thing, right? This was done in the 80s when there's practically no obesity there. And, you know, even now they're doing better than most North Americans, right? So, um, and even compared to those, these, these catavans who are eating all kinds of 
carbohydrates, 69, 70% carbohydrates, but unprocessed, not eating all the time, sort of, you know, um, you can still do extremely well. I mean, I think that part of it, um, you know, a lot of it is due to the sort of intricacies of what the carbohydrates are, right? So if you're eating boiled potato all day long, you're not going to eat much after a while because <laughs> there's no sort of, um, you know, pleasure. Like there's two things, reasons why you eat food. One is you're hungry and two is that it tastes good. So if you take away, you're eating, you know, so this is probably what the Katavans are doing. They're eating a lot of boiled roots and, you know, low, low, low sugar foods. But it's not tasty enough that you're going to say, wow, you know, boiled potato for the third time today <laughs> for the you know, last 35 years Woo-hoo. I've been eating. Yeah. It's like, um, it might be high in carbs, but if I had to eat boiled potato and I had to eat it day in, day out, day in, day out, I would be pretty unenthusiastic. So the minute yeah. that I didn't get, wasn't hungry, I'd probably stop eating that boiled potato if it was like my, you know, 10,000th meal of boiled potato. <laughs> so, you know, you can, you know, so there's a lot, more, it's a lot more intricate than just carbs and fat. And, yeah. you know, th- there's a lot to do with, say, variety. If you restrict foods, you will generally do well because you probably take away. Like if you eat the same food day in, day out, like, like, you know, Chinese people, for example, ate a lot of white rice in the 80s. Very little obesity, but a lot of white rice. Yeah. But I don't know that they really enjoyed it that much because it was every single day. And, you know, as soon as they, 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 they could eat some, you know, they're full, they just didn't want to eat more because there was no pleasurable sort of stimulation as opposed to, you know, what we eat now, oh, we're going to go out to this and McDonald's and Burger King and, you know, all these things which are sort of, you know, made to taste very good. And then we add the variety and we eat foods from all over the world. So therefore, we never lose that sort of zest for that, which is good in one sense. We get to enjoy life. But on the other Mm -hmm. sense, we have to be careful because a lot of times, I think, we stop eating just because we're hungry and we eat because it's a pleasurable activity. Right. I think that's a great example great example of how like different societies eat very differently than the way modern industrialized societies do. So it's not just about the food necessarily, but it's about the whole, the whole atmosphere of the eating. That, that's a great example. So, so one question then is, okay, let's take a couple of different people. I, I mean, I have to talk about fasting with you because you probably know more about fasting for health than, than anybody, but um, someone who's following a ketogenic diet and a whole foods diet um, versus someone who's following a more Western-style diet. If you're going to take them and say, what benefits are they going to get from, from a five-day fast, you know, every quarter or something like that, do you think it's going to be drastically different between those two, the, the potential benefits they might see from fasting because of their baseline diet and their baseline lifestyle? Yeah, because the point about fasting is that you're going to lower your nutrient sensor. So if you're suffering from diseases of too much insulin, then lowering insulin is a very good thing. So therefore, if you're eating a ketogenic diet, which is relatively low, you don't necessarily have to go on a low, uh, on a long fast. For example, if you're eating a standard diet, which is super high, you're eating six, eight times a day, then you're, you're eating foods that are very high in refined carbohydrates, sugars, well, your insulin is super, super high. So lowering is going to be a good thing. Whereas the ketogenic diet, well, you may not need to do that. 
you may not need to do it at all. And I always look back at the 1960s in the United States because it's a period of time where there's very little obesity, and yet people are still eating three times a day, almost mm -hmm. every day. It's just that they didn't eat in between, right? So they stopped eating at six or seven, and they didn't eat again until seven, say. So you're talking about a 12-hour automatic fast every single day. Now, of course, that that sort of doesn't even exist anymore. But the the point is that even if you didn't weren't that careful on the foods, that period of fasting still sort of reset yourself because you allowed yourself that period of low insulin that would get. Now, of course, you finish dinner and people have dessert and they snack. Oh, you should eat a bedtime snack, right? That was like classic dietitian advice for, I don't know, 25 years all through my medical school, all the way up until sort of three years ago. Because otherwise uh, you'd wake up hungry as if that's yeah, like some tragedy. Yeah. Like, <laughs> Right. And it's like, and then the minute you get up, oh, make sure you eat right away. Right. And yeah. I, I probably gave the same advice for the first, you know, 15 years of my career. I didn't do it myself. Yeah. I guess you just don't eat breakfast, but. So this brings up sort of the threshold question, which I think is a fascinating question that is its own topic, but you know, like if, if if a paper came out showing that all you needed to do was fast for three days to get, you know, life extending benefits and nobody in the world is ever going to fast for four days, right? Everybody wants the minimal effective dose. So what is that? Is it a, you know, is a 16-8 going to get you similar results of a five-day fast? And how do we know, how do we measure, you know, what kind of markers can we look for to sort of get an idea of are we hitting a minimally effective dose for weight loss, for blood sugar control, but also longevity and cancer prevention and some of these harder to measure things? Well, I think the only way to look at it, so I don't think there's a minimally effective dose because I think you can do say 12 to 14 hours like the, all the Americans in 1960 and 1970 and still do reasonably well, but there's two sort of things that you can play with, right? You can play with sort of the foods that you eat and you can play with the timing of your meals. And I think you can adjust the two so that you get an optimal balance. Like if you eat really, really bad foods, like fast food all the time, then yeah, you probably have to ratchet down the number of times you eat per day. If you're eating very, very sort of healthy foods, then you may not need to fast so much. So there's different ways that you can play around with it. And I think that there's also things that are, you know, different foods are sort of different levels of you know, fattening ability. So sugar is probably on the top there, right? So you don't need that many calories of sugars to get a lot of damaging effects, as opposed to vegetables, for example. I think that you could eat a lot of vegetables and not worry about it. Whereas sugar, if you start eating a lot of it, you should probably start worrying. And then there's, there's a duration. So if you've been doing it for a long time, then it's going to take a lot more time to reverse. So therefore, the, the best thing, I think, is to simply go with those markers which have been well validated so something like um, uh, your weight for example so things like waist circumference blood pressure so this is the metabolic syndrome which is part and parcel of this whole hyperinsulinemic state you've got hdl you know not ldl which is always very interesting to me but when you look at the metabolic syndrome there's five criteria according to the atp right LDL is not one of them for mm -hmm. all that we talk about LDL. It's HDL and triglycerides. And those are those things that dietary carbohydrates are really going to sort of worsen. But then also sugars, blood pressure, waist circumference. So again, not even weight, which is again, really interesting to me. So the BMI does not 
calculate into the calculation for as one of the criteria for metabolic syndrome is waist circumference because again there's a difference between the fat in your sort of abdomen liver intra-abdominal area compared to the fat elsewhere it's much more metabolically dangerous so those are well validated like we know that if you have type 2 diabetes your risk of cancer your risk of heart disease goes way up therefore you should target that um, as opposed to saying well i want to hit this macro of whatever you want to do right it's like well you could do a high carb diet as long as you're getting towards you know your blood pressure is good your triglycerides are good your hdl is good your sugars are good your waist circumference is good then hey go crazy right <laughs> eat your so, you know because again in the in the 80s you had like literally a billion chinese people who are eating 300 grams of refined carbohydrates a day right yeah. that was the study that they did in the 1980s it was 300 grams of carbohydrates almost all white rice almost zero sugar which was a very interesting yeah. to me too but most of them were metabolically healthy because there's no obesity, their blood pressures are low, that kind of thing. Right? So that's yeah. that's what I mean. Like, you know, sometimes we make things too complicated. Oh, we need to hit this macro or that macro or this or that. You know, to me as a physician, I'm always like, well, these things are well validated. Nobody really denies those things for metabolic syndrome. Uh, so target those. Yes, yeah, so that's interesting. I mean, it's it's the markers to follow are the markers for overall health. If we're talking about longevity, which includes cancer, it's about being healthy, it's about weight, it's about blood sugar, it's about insulin, it's about metabolic syndrome, it's about the things that we can measure and we talk about, but don't always think about in terms of cancer. And I think that's a big part of sort of like about what this book is, about the how the theories have evolved and how it how it does in some way relate to weight. Um, and insulin and diet. And although it may not be, you know, proof of causation, it's certainly highly associated and suggests that addressing those will reduce the risk. And hopefully we're on sort of the forefront of having studies to to show that. And in, in the book, you have a chapter, A New Hope, which I love the Star Wars reference, by the way, but, <laughs> but A New Hope, which is a, a good way to sort of finish it, that you're optimistic for the future. So, so tell us about your optimism and what you see, what you see for the future. Yeah. And I think it stems from sort of that deeper understanding. Cause I think that sometimes we get so blinded by these sort of, Oh, let's do an RCT on this. It's like, well, we also have to think about what it is you're doing, like trying to understand the root causes of your disease so that you can come to sort of rational treatments. And this is by this, whole um, new paradigm it's actually unleashing all these new treatment potentials that we never considered ages ago so because we see it now as an evolutionarily driven disease there's implications for example for screening like you can't get rid of that cancerous seed it's everywhere so if you, the more you look for it you will more you'll find it which may actually lead you to overdiagnosis and overtreatment, which has been the story of mammography for, for a large part. So whereas before we were sort of expanding the indication for mammography, the people have now been moving back on that. So the U.S. Preventative Task Force, for example, has been you know, saying, oh, don't do it at 40. Uh, the other implication is that there's these other new treatments that we never even thought about. So immunotherapy, so this new sort of way of targeting uh, things. So again, if, the, the, if you look at sort of this new evolutionary paradigm, 
what you say is that the cancer is actually basically evolved into essentially a foreign invasive species. And so you might say, oh, that's ridiculous, right? You know, your breast cell didn't turn into an invasive species, but yes, it did. Because that's not the way that I look at it. That's the way that your own immune system looks at it. Mm -hmm. So you know that the immune system, which kills cells, is very powerful, but it has to distinguish between foreign cells, like bacteria and fungi. It wants to kill them, but you don't want it to be killing your own cells. That's why you have foreign cells, you know, they're called self and non-self cells. You have ways to distinguish them. Well, cancer cells are identified by your immune system as foreign cells. You have natural killer cells, which without even having seen them before, will target these cells and kill them. Right? So it's identified by your own immune system as a foreign invasive species. So now if we understand that you have to treat this as an invasive species, well, we have a whole system, the immune system that actually is designed for that. So now if we simply boost it, we can actually do things like immunotherapy. So we have these great new treatments, which, you know, and, and they're just starting. So, you know, I don't want to judge among them, but, the, you know, the checkpoint inhibitors have been very successful in a number of treatments like, you know, metallonoma. You have CAR T therapy, which is almost brand new. So again, maybe it's, it will work, maybe it won't work, but it's a new way, a whole new way of treating cancer that's that's just incredible because again you're not trying to kill cells right that's paradigm one you're not trying to fix genetic defects that's paradigm two now what you're doing is you're fixing you're trying to boost the immune system to fight an invasive species very much like an invasive like a you know a bacterial infection and interestingly you use the exact same terms in infections right they're metastatic infections because they're going where they don't need to go only two two diseases are referred to as metastatic cancer and infections and that's not by coincidence because they are actually very similar in many 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 respects mm -hmm. and in fact the the other treatments for example i talk about there's adaptive therapy which is um, this way of treating say prostate cancer instead of giving maximally tolerated doses, so MTD, which is a standard way. So the standard way we've always thought about chemotherapy is give the most drug you can without killing the patient, right? And that, that was, remember, the whole scandal behind the autologous bone marrow transplant, which is a whole sordid story that I didn't actually get into. But um, I don't know if you remember this, but the autologous bone marrow transplants were once very popular for various diseases because some guy said, you know, he was getting great results. Turns out it's all fabricated. <laughs> so huh. the whole thing was just baloney. So here we were, and I did this myself when I was doing my oncology rotations, giving people maximum, super maximal doses, and then rescue uh, autologous bone marrow. It turns out there was no evidence at all for that. But anyway, um, that was always the way you treated with chemotherapy. Turns out it may not be the best way because, again, you don't have to kill every bacteria in your body. You know, you have all these good bacteria in your gut, for example. Right. So right. you should actually just give enough to maintain a good balance. And that's, the, that's this uh, idea of adaptive therapy, which is what you're going to do is you're going to give less treatment and only give it when you need to so that you just suppress it rather than try and kill it outright, because you will never kill cancer completely outright because the seed lies in all of us. 
When you give too much chemotherapy, what you do is you now have a selection pressure on those cancer cells, and you will select out the most drug-resistant cell, right? Because now you're applying evolutionary biology to cancer, which you never did before because you didn't know it was an evolutionary disease. So it's like, okay, that's another completely fascinating area, which we're just scratching the surface on. And there's another one called the abscopal effect, which is, again, where these checkpoint inhibitors, this immunotherapy drug, may actually unleash this sort of hidden potential of radiation treatment. So if you radiate a cell, so if you give checkpoint inhibitors, which is one of the immunotherapies, in combination with radiation therapy, so say you radiate a metastasis in the liver, if they're on immunotherapy, it turns out that sometimes you see a reduction in the cancer, not just where you radiated, but elsewhere in the body. Hmm. It's like, that's interesting. What happened there? So what probably happened there is that the radiation sort of broke up these cancer cells with the immunotherapy. It's sort of, uh, you know, almost like a vaccine. It exposed the sort of antigens to your own immune system. Now the immune system can identify, say, a metastasis that's not in the liver that you radiated, but say in the bone. And the bone mass will start to shrink. And it's like, whoa, that's fascinating. (laughs) What's interesting is that prior to the immunotherapy age, it was very rare. But since we started using immunotherapy, you've had, you know, sort of this, you know, whole bunch of case reports coming out where it's like, oh, we had this patient, we radiated his liver and his bone mats got better or Mm. his spleen mats got better. It's like, wow, that's fascinating. And you can't understand it until you understand the sort of cancer paradigm 3.0. But again, points to the fact that we have all this potentially game-changing stuff in front of us still. And that's very, you know, to me, it's like, I'm very optimistic because now we have a whole new way of of looking at things as opposed to 2010, where we're sort of at rock bottom and, you know, we had nowhere, what are we going to do now? The genetic paradigm's dead, right? It's like, so it's like, wow. Your your passion and your intellectual curiosity about this is very clear. I mean, it's clear that you're, you're, you're excited about this, about where the future will bring us because of, of all these just fascinating, um, this fascinating progression of how we've understood cancer. And so it, it seems like the future is going to be a combination of, of targeted, better targeted therapies, immunotherapies, but also withdrawing the growth factors, um, withdrawing the glucose, the insulin, and that combination may be the strongest of all. And we didn't even talk about how fasting um, can impact radiation therapy and chemotherapy, you know, fasting around those. Um, so I, I think you're right. I think the future definitely um, is going to be very interesting for cancer therapy, and hopefully we'll make much more progress in the next you know, 10 or 20 years than we have in the past 40 or 50 years. I mean, I think the, the curve is going to be pretty steep, and, and I think that's the hope that, that your book sort of leaves us with. So, uh, I mean, so it was such a great um, and detailed description uh, of the theory of cancer. Um, so I definitely recommend it for everybody. And, and where else can you know people find you uh, to learn more about you and what you're doing and all the all the great work you're you're providing? Yeah, so you can follow me on social media um, on Twitter or Instagram. It's at Dr. Jason Fung. That's Dr. Jason Fung. You can find me on my website, which is thefastingmethod.com. We have a whole bunch of blogs that have been written over the last sort of eight 
years or so. So there's a lot of uh, free information there. And you can find me on YouTube as well. I'm posting a lot of new videos these days, just going over some of the basics of fasting, trying to you know, help people in terms of trying to get them better. So you can find me any of those places. Great. Well, I really appreciate you taking the time uh, to be on the show once again, and hopefully we'll have you back uh, again in the future because it's always a pleasure to talk to you. Great to talk to you too, Brett.